You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Brock, Griffin, Jonathan, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Roland, Lancelot, Bigbeard, Ash, Willie P., Brian, Schmarls, Madame Anita Sparrow, Randy Savage, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Kilmeister, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters Heather, Robbie, Howard, Brandon, and Felony Melanie. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Jenny, Ian, Rogue Pirate, Ryan, Roberto, Michael, Grady, Jesse, Stephen, Shep, and Felix. And our newest quartermaster, Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores, Shant, Rotary Coast, and Cap'n Crunch. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to cover a lot of ground, and we're going to be moving fast to do so, so I'm not going to waste any time with a lengthy introduction. Let's just jump right in. This is episode 271. Come and take it. Last time we talked about Robert Culliford and how he earned the nickname Cutlass Culliford. He and the other men of the Mocha Frigate, in concert with the pirates from the Charming Mary, had captured a surprisingly rich prize. Each of the one hundred pirates that took part in that raid ended up with one pound of gold as well as all of the potential profits from the cargo. That was mostly silk but also opium and spices that they found on board. Now, the only place to fence goods in the region, of that type, in that quantity, for anything even resembling a fair price, well, that was St. Mary's Island. That's where, as far as these pirates knew, Adam Baldridge had his fort and his merchant outpost. But of course, by this point, the Malagasy at St. Mary's had risen up. They'd killed 
all of the white people at Adam Baldridge's outpost, and Baldridge himself, who was away at the time, came back, saw the aftermath, and then departed. He went back to New York. Now, it was the charming Mary that was the first to find out about all of this. They were at St. Mary's when the uprising took place, just not at the actual trading post. And upon discovering the massacre, they did what was, for my money, the right thing. They left. Charming Mary set sail for Barbados. And aside from John Ireland, who would later be called to testify about piracy in the Indian Ocean, but never charged with any piracy, all of those pirates from the Charming Mary would get away with it. Some of these men had been pirates of the round since Thomas II's first voyage back in 1692. Some of them, when Thomas II put the capture of a potential prize before them for a vote, some of those men were those who had proclaimed, a gold chain or a wooden leg will stand with you. The men of the Charming Mary, most of them, anyway, had sailed aboard the Amity in 1695 on Henry Avery's cruise. And then they'd taken this most recent prize. It was enough for them to retire, and I assume some of them did. On the other hand, the Mocha frigate had a bit rockier of a road. Instead of heading for St. Mary's after they captured that rich Portuguese prize, they sailed for the Maldives. And the pirates of the Mocha, there weren't very many of them, there were only about 20 men on board, but those men abused the people of the Maldives. They'd usually arrive with friendly faces on, sail in peacefully, offer tribute to the local king, and they'd be permitted ashore to collect wood and water and trade for things like food. And they did all that, but they also ate and drank everything they found, even that that did not belong to them. They would scour these small villages like locusts. They slaughtered and cooked up all of the cattle in town. They drank all of the wine, and they, well, yeah, they raped any woman that they pleased. Any resistance to this reign of terror, and they'd just kill you. On one of these islands, in a village that had plenty of cattle for them to enjoy, as well as plenty of attractive young women for them to enjoy, the pirates elected to stay a while. They had to careen the mocha, which they did, they got about scrubbing and scraping and tarring her hull, but they also terrorized the island's population for six whole weeks. It was terrible, but the pirates did eventually leave. They tried to sail west to St. Mary's, but the winds proved contrary, so instead they put in at the Lacadive Islands, just to the northwest of the Maldives. The captain of the Mocha, Ralph Stout, elected to lead a party ashore where, presumably, they thought they could find more of what they had been enjoying for so long. Women, wine, pork, easy pickings. But as soon as they stepped off their boat, the pirates, this shore-bound party, they noticed several other abandoned boats on shore, but no people around. The island, and it wasn't very large, the island seemed empty. This party of pirates trudged inland into the tree line to see what they would find. On the mocha, the men waited and gambled and ate and drank, but a few hours later, 
One man, covered in blood apparently, rushed out of the tree line, jumped in the boat, and pushed off in haste. He rowed out to the Mocha as fast as possible, and once aboard he related a tale of ambush and torture and killing. He was the only one left. Everyone he had gone ashore with, including Captain Stout, had been killed. Now this isn't quite as dramatic a tale as that of Francois Lolonnais, a pirate who was similarly sadistic and committed all sorts of atrocities and then was killed and allegedly eaten by vengeful natives. But it does have that same flavor, you know, just desserts to men who had so terrorized these innocent people. So the Mocha frigate, who had lost some of their already tiny crew, you know, they could have gone ashore with guns loaded and tried to avenge their fallen brethren, but they might not make it. They didn't have that many men. So instead, they set sail. However, once they were a safe distance away, they stopped again. They had to call a council and elect new officers. Finally, Robert Culliford became captain of the Mocha. James Kelly, apparently against his wishes, was elected quartermaster. Now, we haven't talked a lot about James Kelly on the show, which is kind of surprising. He was also known as James Gilliam from time to time, but he's been in this story for a long time. He's one of the pirates from the Second Pacific Adventure. There, he sailed under John Eaton and then under Edward Davis on The Bachelor's Delight. But in 1688, he sailed from Rhode Island to the Red Sea, among the very first pirates of the round. He's one of those pirates who found the signet, William Dampier's old ship, abandoned in St. Augustine Bay. But in 1691, James Kelly was arrested on the coast of India and imprisoned. There, he was encouraged, forcefully encouraged, to convert to Islam, and, as part of the conversion process, circumcised. And I know I've mentioned that a couple of times, but it's a detail that you should remember. He was among that group that escaped from prison in 1696 alongside Robert Culliford. And now he found himself quartermaster of one of the best pirate ships in the world, but that was a tricky situation in which he found himself. See, due to some internal, interpersonal politics on board the Mocha, Cutlass Culliford was not a captain with a lot of support. He'd won the captaincy, but only by a hair. About half the crew constantly obstructed his decisions, and, you know, that was allowed. A pirate captain did not make policy in a vacuum here. His decisions were really just suggestions with weight behind them, but they didn't have to be followed. But it still dragged things almost to a halt when half the crew was arguing with everything that he said. The first big fight between Captain Culliford's men and the other half of the crew was about which way they wanted to go. Were they going to head east or west? Madagascar or Indonesia? Now, Culliford wanted to make for Madagascar, but his opponents wanted to go back to Indonesia to win more riches. It was his opponents that won that argument, and they headed back across the Bay of Bengal into the Malacca Strait. Once there, they stumbled upon what would have been 
the second richest prize yet taken by any pirates of the round. Maybe the first, maybe the richest prize that any pirates of the round had taken so far. That ship was the Doral, and she was an East India Company ship carrying a huge amount of silver and gold. It was destined first for India, but their real destination was London. This ship was the treasure ship of a lifetime. Now, the crew there on the Mocha was debating whether or not to attack, because it was not some tiny, paltry, insignificant vessel. It was filled with men and guns it would not be easy to take. But because of that, they knew it was going to be a very rich prize. Still, the arguments turned vicious. James Kelly said about this debate, quote, Hell was never in greater confusion than was then aboard. End quote. Finally, due to all of this consternation, Captain Cutlass Culliford resigned. He quit. He stepped down as captain. And it was partly because he was the issue here. Some of the men, about half the crew, really didn't want to follow him into battle. Now that he'd resigned, those who supported him in the argument, those who said, you know, maybe this is a bad idea, guys, well, all of those people backed down, and those who wanted to attack won out. Now, that half of the crew asked James Kelly to lead them, to serve as captain during this raid, but Kelly said, no, he wasn't interested. He pointed to Cutlass Culliford and... In effect, he said, there is your man. So the pirates, now that they had a target in mind, they just kind of reinstated Captain Culliford. They didn't like him, but they needed somebody to lead them into battle, and he was the most experienced. In short order, the Mocha caught up with the Doral and pulled up alongside. Culliford had his men raise the red flag, and then he hailed the Doral. He ordered them to strike sail, and then said, quote, Gentlemen, we want not your ship, but only your money. The captain of the Doral replied, That's well. Come and take it. And then that East India Company captain ordered his men to fire. It wasn't just a regular volley. It was a sudden, fierce, explosive wall that hit the Mocha. And really, it wasn't even a fight at all. The Mocha only got off a couple of poorly aimed volleys, while the Doral was raining broadside after broadside down on her. The mast was damaged, the hull took a bunch of hits, several men died, and then one of the men said, quote, You may put her about, for I'll fight no more. And the rest of the crew took up a cry of each man yelling, Nor I. So the Mocha, the first battle under Captain Culliford, fled. And there were a few twists and turns to follow, more small prizes and a few more islands visited by the pirates and paid their attentions, but in the end, by April of 1698, the Mocha frigate was headed for St. Mary's Island. At almost that exact same moment, after capturing that rich Armenian prize, the Quida merchant, the adventure galley turned her prow west. The Quida was a rich enough prize that it bought Captain Kidd some time with his unhappy, angry, and mutinous crew, but only some time. 
it wasn't enough for his men to retire. You know, they had no pound of gold. Still, Captain Kidd knew that his men needed a break, and he needed to sell the cargo he'd just captured, so their ship headed for Adam Baldridge's pirate trading post. And this was something of a defeat for Captain Kidd. He was supposed to be hunting pirates, but it was looking, on the outside at least, more and more like he'd joined the ranks of the pirates. Before setting off, Captain Kidd renamed the Quida Merchant, which he took with him. He called it the Adventure Prize. So the Adventure Galley, the Adventure Prize, and that ship full of the more rambunctious pirates among his crew, the November, they all headed west. And having those two ships, not really under his command at this point, but having them with him, that was good. It meant more guns, more tactical opportunities, but it also presented some problems. Because Captain Kidd didn't have more men to sail these ships, they were all very lightly manned. Adventure Galley had only 40 men on board. Now, a few of those were Indians who had basically been enslaved by this point, and they were forced to do all of the work. But it wasn't just laziness. All of the Europeans on board, nearly all of them, were sick. Kidd's brother-in-law, Samuel Bradley, well, he had a terrible case of what they called the bloody flux. That's dysentery, really bad stuff and a bunch of the crew were suffering that same disease or other equally terrible maladies. So there were maybe only a dozen men on board who were actually able to do any work, and this was a problem for the day-to-day -day maneuvering of the ship, you know, setting sails, steering, that stuff was hard to do, but the big problem was the condition of the ship. Basic maintenance just wasn't getting done because there weren't enough hands to do it. Those Indians on board were working round the clock doing nothing but pumping the holds. The hull was in such bad shape that the ship was constantly filling with water and the only way to keep her afloat was to keep men working the pumps. The ship was in such a state... Well, look, it was uncertain that she would even make it to St. Mary's. It was almost certainly certain that she would not make it round the Cape of Good Hope or back to New York. Kid was probably a bit relieved when he spotted St. Mary's in his spyglass. But his first concern, considering the condition of his ship, was to turn around and look for the other two vessels in the fleet. He was going to need them, but as yet they were nowhere to be seen. The lookouts up in the rigging of the adventure galley, they spied another set of sails. They could only see the very top of her masts on the opposite side of the island from the adventure galley, but it was clearly a big ship. Kid didn't know who it was. Almost anyone was bad news. Pirates, East India Company ships, the Navy. So Kid waited around for about half a day to see if maybe one of his ships would show up on the horizon, but... They didn't, and he really didn't have the manpower to keep his ship floating. They needed to put in at a harbor, which they did. Kid rounded St. Mary's and put in at the harbor at what had been Adam Baldridge's pirate outpost. They put a boat ashore, but when those men returned, Kid learned two shocking pieces of information. First, Adam Baldridge was gone. That was certainly a problem, but 
In the intervening months, another New York merchant had set up shop at this pirate fort. His name was Edward Welch, and he provided basic services, you know, food, water, cattle, and he was willing to buy pirated goods from the pirates, but he wasn't associated with those powerful men back in New York. Frederick Phillips was not involved. That means that he was not trading in human beings. The slave trade was no longer an active interest on St. Mary's Island. But that also means that Edward Welch wasn't able to fence hundreds of pounds of silk, for example. He was just kind of doing his own thing with his own money trading with the merchants that stopped by. He was also staying firmly out of the politics of St. Mary's Island and the greater Madagascar region, which means that the Malagasy were more or less just kind of okay with him. They traded with him, and they called him the Little King. Now, the second, more shocking piece of information was about that other ship in the harbor. Kidd learned that it was the Mocha, a stolen East India Company frigate that was captained by Robert Cutlass Culliford. Now, William Kidd knew Robert Culliford already, although the colorful nickname was new. Culliford had been one of those men who had mutinied against Captain Kidd back in the West Indies aboard the Blessed William in 1688. And some writers, in fact, most writers, tend to make a big deal about this old acquaintance, this old enmity. They harp on Captain Kidd's desire for revenge against his old enemy, the burning hatred that reaches up from Captain Kidd's gullet and grabs him by the throat. But I don't think that's what's really happening here. Back in New York, after the mutiny, while Captain Kidd was serving as a magistrate, he stood as a judge over some of the very men that had mutinied against him. And Captain Kidd ruled in their favor. He let him go. He even secured privateering contracts for some of these men who would go on to sail as pirate rounders. When he was recruiting for this very voyage, Captain Kidd had recruited a couple of those same men who had mutinied against him. They were serving on the adventure galley. Well, they had served, and now they were aboard the November. But all of that tells me that Captain Kidd didn't really hold a grudge against those old mutineers. He was willing to work with them. However, in this case, Captain Kidd very much wanted to capture that ship and to arrest Cutlass Culliford. His job, the purpose of his voyage, had been to capture pirates, and as yet, he'd met no pirates on the Indian Ocean, but here was a guy who had stolen an East India Company frigate, a fine vessel. And I mean, think about all the times that Kidd had been snubbed by company officials in the past several months. And then imagine the kind of satisfaction that Captain Kidd would feel when he sailed the Mocha, this stolen company vessel, up the Thames River into London. And he had this notorious pirate in custody, and then and this is the real cherry on the cake, when he got to write the governor of the East India Company, John Gayer, to inform him that he, Captain Kidd, humble pirate hunter, had rescued the Mocha frigate from the hands of the vile pirate. 
Pirates. And of course, Captain Kidd, for his valiant efforts, would almost certainly receive a knighthood, so he could sign that delicious letter, Captain Sir William Kidd. Sounds pretty good. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Beyond that, though, on a much more practical level, Captain Kidd's ship wasn't going to make it home. Adventure Galley was sinking. That frigate, though, would allow him to return home in style with his head held high, and her holds would, of course, be filled with cargo legally obtained to satiate his many powerful financial backers. So Kidd definitely wanted that ship, and he wanted to arrest Culliford. But I don't think it's for the more personal revenge-based reasons that we're often told. That might create some good drama, but it doesn't really mesh with the rest of what we know about Captain Kidd. Nonetheless, Captain Kidd was not nearly strong enough to take that ship. His men were all sick, Adventure Galley was leaking, and his crew, even had they been healthy, well, it was tiny. But Captain Kidd wasn't just going to let her go. He positioned his ship at the mouth of the harbor in such a way that any ship attempting to leave would pass through his line of fire. Culliford, if Captain Kidd decided to fire, would be unable to leave. But Culliford, on St. Mary's Island, was unconcerned. He had a hut in a nearby Malagasy village, as did his twenty or so men, and they were all enjoying themselves. Captain Kidd didn't know any of this, of course. Had his men been in slightly better shape, they could have taken the mocha, maybe with no loss of life at all. She only had a skeleton crew aboard, like five or six people making sure that she wasn't actively sinking. The rest of the mocha frigate's crew were busy carousing. It would have been child's play to steal that ship and sail her out of the harbor. Remember how angry... All of those Malagasy slaves had been about being made into slaves, about being forced into hard labor and sexual servitude. Well, that was no longer the case. The free Malagasy women were more than happy to trade their charms to the pirates. For bales of silk, certainly. For what we would consider baubles, but were fine tools like combs and mirrors, and... Of course, gold spent everywhere. 
Captain Culliford had three beautiful women that waited on him hand and foot. They fed him, they poured his rum, they bathed him, they rubbed his feet and indulged any sexual pleasures he might wish. Now, remember that Culliford had a long-time male partner. They were involved in a matiolage together and were probably lovers as well as financial partners. But that doesn't mean that, given the opportunity here on this tropical paradise, Culliford wasn't going to enjoy these three beautiful women doting on him and all of his whims. So I like to picture here, I imagine Captain Kidd stewing in his cabin, fretting over what plans Culliford might have, concocting his own plans and, you know, tearing out his hair in frustration. He doesn't have the might to do what needs to be done. But all the while, Culliford has one woman fanning him, another feeding his grapes, and the third, well, use your imagination. Whether or not it was actually accurate, weeks passed with no communication between the two ships, but finally, sails appeared. It was the November, arriving at St. Mary's Island, which, actually, you know, come to think of it, not that great for Captain Kidd. The November, full of rambunctious men who, at this point, let's just call them what they were, they were pirates, well, the November didn't even bother to hail their former admiral. Her captain, a pirate named Joseph Palmer, just sailed the November onto a sandbank in the middle of the harbor and tossed an anchor overboard, and he'd positioned himself in such a way that he was exactly in the middle of the two ships. He could go either way here, but Captain Kidd knew that he was not to be trusted, nor were any of his men. There was no immediate concern, however. The men of the November climbed ashore and began to indulge in all of those pleasures that the somewhat reborn Libertalia had to offer. A few more weeks passed before the Adventure Prize, the former Quida merchant, finally arrived at St. Mary's. The men of the Adventure Prize were loyal to Kidd, more or less, but they were not about to ignore the pleasures of St. Mary's Island. Kidd did go over to the deck of the Adventure Prize to plan his attack, but dozens of beautiful women climbed aboard the ship carrying, you know, jugs of rum and wine, plates of fresh fruit, roasted meat, and all night long the sound of fiddles and singing and toasts being made and love-making filled the air. For the men of the Adventure Prize, it was their first night of R&R in a long time. All the while, though, Captain Kidd stood on the forecastle brooding. He was ready to attack, and he wanted to do so immediately. But imagine this. You've been at sea for several months. You've had nothing but stagnant water and rice and rotting meat. Then some stunningly attractive stranger sits down and smiles and laughs with you and delights in your gifts and finally goes to bed with you. It's the best night you've had in years. As dawn arrives, your limbs intertwined. The crack of a pistol shot breaks the stillness of the morning. Your companion rushes off while you rush to the deck to see what the trouble is. Are you under attack? But no, there's Captain William Kidd loading his pistol, standing above you with his sword on his belt. He's ready for battle, and he tells you so. 
The time has come for action. It's time to fight and maybe to die to take the mocha. Captain Kidd said to the men, quote, We have sufficient power and authority to do it. So you're standing there, looking up at him, wondering, Why? Is it worth it? You have everything you need right here. No thanks to that man telling you to risk your life. After Kidd gave his oration, a tense silence dragged on. But finally, one sailor broke the tension. He shouted, We would rather fire two guns into you than one into Culliford. Cheers erupted around the deck, and another upped the ante. He shouted, Ten guns into you. The cheers increased, and finally the men began to shout, Where is our money? They were demanding their pay. They decried the treatment handed down by Captain Kidd, and several of them recalled the murder of William Moore. The surgeon of the adventure galley, Robert Brandenham, stepped into the fray. He tried to calm the men down. And he did so at no small amount of personal risk, but really no one was going to kill the surgeon. Dr. Brandenham called for a parley, and the men, grumbling, agreed. They held a contentious council on the deck of the Adventure Prize, but in the end they came to a vote. Ninety-six men voted to leave the command of Captain Kidd. Only fifteen voted to remain loyal. Defeated, William Kidd took a boat with his remaining fifteen men back to his leaky little galley. The men of the assembled November and Adventure Prize crews began the painstaking task of unloading their plunder from the Quida. They planned to sell all of it to Welch, all of their silks and calicos and spices and opium, everything they had. This was a long process. It took days of hard labor. These were 200-pound bales of fabric or crates of the other goods. They had to load it into their boats and then ferry it to shore, unload it and do it all over again. But it wasn't all bad, you know, their nights were filled with pleasures. A few days into this process, though, Captain Kidd appeared with all fifteen of his men and a few Malagasy guards borrowed from Edward Welch. He demanded that all of this unloading stop immediately. He told them that the cargo was going to be sold in New York as planned and the men laughed at him. Still, though, Kidd was a powerful presence. He stared them all down, and he argued that he required forty shares. That was what he was contractually obliged to hand over to his financiers, and what he was owed. He had led them when they took that prize, after all. Now, of course, these men could deny him, but if they did, the legality of their voyage would be null and void. Kidd argued. They would be branded as pirates and hunted down by every sailor in the king's navy. And it was a good argument. These men still weren't officially pirates. Nothing they had done yet branded them as such. Plus, it was what they owed Captain Kidd. So these... You know, everyone calls these men mutineers. Even Richard Zacks, who's usually better about this kind of stuff. But they weren't mutineers. They'd signed a privateer contract with Captain Kidd, a buccaneer-style document, that gave them the right to vote on their captain. 
and Kidd really hadn't lived up to his end, so they voted him out. Still, these privateers heard the argument and weighed its merit. They granted Kidd his forty shares, and even tossed on an extra fifteen, so that Kidd's men would have their own shares. They'd been there too. After all, they weren't here to steal from them, they just wanted what they felt they were owed. Once they began selling their goods to Edward Welch, they were less than elated by the prices he offered. Really, they would have had better luck in New York, or much better luck had Baldridge still been around. But Welch did have silver and rum to trade and beef, so they traded anyway. As the days dragged on, the men unloading the cargo began to notice a few others that they did not know, coming down to see what was happening at the shore, to visit and to join in the party as night came. Turns out these were Culliford's men, and it all eventually came out that the men who had left the command of Captain Kidd intended to join Culliford if he would have them. Now, there was some suspicion about this, especially on the part of Robert Culliford. It did seem kind of like a trap, but those men who went down to visit with those unloading the November and the Adventure Prize, they, well, they really seemed to hate Captain Kidd, and it seemed honest. So, Captain Culliford allowed them to join. Which, they may not have been pirates yet. But joining Captain Culliford, that was a declaration of their intention to become so. But put yourself in their shoes. Would you rather, what, go back to New York to make shoes for a living, for some pittance of a wage? Would you join the Navy where you could be beaten or killed by your superior officers, or would you go on the account? When Captain Kidd went over to the Adventure Prize to collect his shares, he questioned Dr. Bradenham about his intention to leave, and Dr. Bradenham wouldn't speak to him, wouldn't even look him in the eye, completely ignored him. And that was a problem for Captain Kidd. Losing a doctor was always bad news, but this particular man had spent a lot of time in Captain Kidd's cabin treating Samuel Bradley. During those visits, Dr. Bradenham had noticed that sea chest that Captain Kidd had in there. A sea chest banded in iron, with two separate locks, and Dr. Bradenham surmised correctly that it was filled with riches. It was the chest that Captain Kidd had found and secreted away on board the Quida. Later that evening... The men of the Adventure Galley spotted the men of the Adventure Prize, loading into boats and heading their direction. So Kidd ordered his men to gather every gun they had on board and meet in his cabin. Soon enough, dozens of pirates came on board the Adventure Galley. They marched down to the door of Captain Kidd's quarters and began to pound on the door. Now Kidd had a few dozen guns inside, with maybe six men that were able to actually fire, and another six to reload the guns. They'd upturned the table, and they were all ducked down behind it with anything they could pile in front, bags of rice, what have you, to guard the bullets that were going to fly in. Should the pirates knock down the door, Captain Kidd and his men would fire into the opening mercilessly. They might die, but they would take out as many men as possible before they fell. Kidd listened to the shout 
shouts from outside his door, the demands to be allowed entry, and then he responded that he was waiting for them. He dared them to break down the door and see the reception that he had planned. The pirates outside milled about for about half an hour and eventually just decided to leave. It wasn't worth what was waiting on the other side of that door. Had they known what was actually in the chest, they may have felt differently, but they didn't know. Still, they did take their revenge. As they were departing the ship, they went down to the hold and found the casks of rum, the bottles of wine, and, like a parody of some old Prohibition-era raid, they began breaking the casks and pulling their swords to chop the tops off of the bottles, dumping all of the contents onto the deck and thus into the ocean. The next morning, Captain Culliford sailed out of the harbor at St. Mary's Island with all 96 of Captain Kidd's men along for the ride. You will sometimes, often, even see it said that Captain Cutlass Culliford beat Captain Kidd again, as he had back in 1688, but really, Culliford didn't beat Captain Kidd here. Captain Kidd, once again as he had done so many times before, defeated himself. Culliford was merely there to pick up what Captain Kidd dropped. And now, William Kidd was left with only fifteen men and two leaky old vessels all alone on St. Mary's Island. Captain Kidd's situation wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as it might seem on the surface. He had two ships available to him. They'd taken the November, and while the adventure galley was mostly useless, it still had a lot of good stuff on board. Kidd decided to strip her of everything he might use and transfer all of it to the adventure prize. Then, with a ship fit to sail, he would go home. He even found a bit more help than he had been anticipating. Once Culliford was gone, about a dozen men emerged from the trading post and approached the adventure galley. They were all well-tanned, tough-looking sailors, but they were not ragged pirates. Most of them, as it turned out, were men from the Mocha who had signed up back when she was still an East India Company ship. When the pirates mutinied with only about a dozen men, these sailors had been forced into service. Maybe some of them chose to serve, but under Culliford they found they did not care for the life. But now that the Mocha had 96 pirates aboard, Culliford either didn't notice or pretended not to notice when they jumped ship. And all these men were skilled sailors, but most importantly, they were all healthy. They'd served in the Indian Ocean for years now. They'd weathered all the diseases that might be thrown at them. Two names are kind of notable. You've got Dudley Rayner, the first mate of the Mocha before the mutiny, and the former gunner, men named John Hales. But the most notable name to abandon Cutlass Culliford in favor of Captain Kidd was James Kelly a man who had been a pirate on the account for almost twenty years now, maybe longer. He had a chest full of riches, much of it gold, and decided it was time to return home to Rhode Island. Now that he had men fit to work, they set about stripping the adventure galley of everything. 
Her ropes and nails, hinges, tackle, guns, powder, food, water barrels. They put all of it ashore, and then they burned the adventure galley. They did so not out of sentiment, but to collect some of the metal on board they would not have been able to were she still intact. And then they began to work on the adventure prize. And these turned out to be some of the best days that William Kidd had on his entire voyage. They were filled with hard work, mostly the careening of the adventure prize, but now that Culliford wasn't around, Kidd finally had the chance to take the time to enjoy the delights of St. Mary's, as could those men. Even the sick among his crew, Samuel Bradley included, began to improve. They had access to fresh, mostly clean water. They had plenty of rum from Welch to kill all the bacteria in that water, and soon enough everybody was up and working. They had almost a full crew here. Now, William Kidd did not know that at almost this very moment, events were transpiring elsewhere that would eventually doom him. Culliford was busy engaging in some pretty spectacular piracy. That was going to get back to the Grand Mughal, but Aurangzeb wasn't going to curse the name of Cutlass Culliford. No, the pirate he was most concerned with, the one the East India Company told him to be concerned with, was Captain Kidd. But Kidd didn't know any of that yet, for now, back at St. Mary's, he was almost ready to depart. But then, you'll never guess who showed up. The kinda quasi-legal privateer ship Fidelia arrived at St. Mary's. She was lately out of Bombay, originally out of New York, and heading back to New York on this leg of the voyage. The captain of the Fidelia was Tempest Rogers. Now, you may remember him as a pirate who sailed under Thomas Wake back in 1693, who probably sailed with Henry Every in 95. But you should remember him most notably because of his awesome name. Well, now Tempest Rogers was a captain in his own right, but not a pirate captain. He was one of those pirate-adjacent merchants at this point. But it's his bosun here that really interests me. When Tempest Rogers greeted the Adventure Prize and was invited on board, he and Captain Kidd shared some drinks and toasts and news, you know what captains did, but Tempest Rogers knew James Kelly. They'd served together back in 95, and he also remembered that James Kelly told amazing stories of the adventures in the Pacific back in the 80s. So Tempest Rogers sent for his bosun. And who should arrive but our old friend Edward Davis, the former captain of Bachelor's Delight, the close friend to John Cox, the man who had been arrested upon arrival in Virginia, and when he paid his bail it was so much that it became the seed capital for the College of William and Mary. A great reunion was held on board the Adventure Prize. Now, Edward Davis elected to sign on with Captain Kidd, or maybe, according to one version of the story, maybe he was abandoned by Tempest Rogers. Either way, he was going to sail with Captain Kidd. And soon enough, their ship seaworthy, they set sail for home. Now, we don't have a lot of information about the return voyage to America. 
Kidd was wise enough to avoid all of the major shipping lanes and all of the ports like Cape Town or St. Helena. There were a few alleged sightings of the Adventure Prize, but if they were true, they were blown way out of proportion. There were reports in places like Bombay and London that had Captain Kidd at the helm of a massive Moorish warship with a crew of more than 200 murderous, frothing Arabian pirates. He was raping and plundering and pillaging his way along the coast of India, no, of Africa, no, he was headed to London with a fleet of Orientals at his command. No, that was the Grand Mughal, incensed at the depredations of Captain Kidd, intending to burn London for his crimes. None of it was true, of course. Captain Kidd had a modest ship at best, of Armenian build, with a crew of only twenty-four men, and he was keeping his head down. At one point he spotted what appeared to be a fleet of English warships and quickly got out of sight, which was a good move because they actually were English warships and they'd been sent by the king specifically to hunt down Captain Kidd. They were under the command of one of Kidd's nemeses, a man named Commodore Warren, who's been something of a thorn in his side all throughout this voyage. Nonetheless, Warren passed him by without noticing, and Adventure Prize was allowed to sail quietly to the West Indies. Captain Kidd put in at Anguilla, an English possession. And this must have been kind of a magical moment. This was an English settlement. There were well-dressed English women walking around, there were sailors who spoke every dialect in the empire, and there were taverns lining the dock. It must have felt very much like coming home. The whole crew climbed off the Adventure Prize and settled their feet on English soil for the first time in years, and they headed to the nearest tavern. The beer there was fresh and crisp and carbonated, which it never was on board a ship. They enjoyed crispy sausages and potatoes, all good English fare. For the first time, in as long as any of them could remember, the men were able to relax. And then, from a soused man at the end of the bar, William Kidd heard his own name. That drunk was saying that the pirate captain William Kidd could be anywhere. But they were going to hunt him down. Every captain in the empire, every governor, every magistrate had orders to arrest Captain Kidd and his men on sight. This appeared to be common knowledge. The old drunk was getting cheers at his declarations. Captain Kidd was stunned. Him? A pirate? He'd worked so hard to keep his men, his name, from piracy. He had passports and letters from French governors that proved every ship he had captured was a legal prize. Nonetheless, he had been branded the worst pirate in the world. He and the crew slunk back to their ship and quickly and quietly departed. Their next stop was St. Thomas, a Dutch possession. They petitioned the governor there for entrance, but they were told that if they chose to enter the harbor, they would be doing so at their own risk. The governor wanted no part of this English rogue or the diplomatic fallout his presence would bring. Instead, the adventure prize lingered just off the coast, out of range of the shipping lanes and 
the guns of the fort. When night fell, a bunch of little boats came out to meet the adventure prize. These were smugglers that traded in pirated goods at a discounted rate, but would carry them ashore safely and allowed ships to enter the harbor without any trouble from customs officials. Now, Kid didn't want to sell. He didn't have any pirated goods, but he was willing to pay for information. He asked after the colony of Aruba, where the governor, an old friend of Captain Kidd's, owed him a favor. But that governor had recently died. So, as a potential safe haven, Aruba was out. But Captain Kidd also learned that there was a new Scottish colony down south in a region called Darien. As a Scot by birth, Captain Kidd seriously considered sailing for this new Caledonia. It was a place he might be welcomed. Maybe a place where his money would go far. Maybe a place where he could buy up huge tracts of land, bring his wife down, and become something of a lord of new Caledonia. Who knows? But before he could make his decision, he had to make another. What to do with Samuel Bradley? The illness that had plagued him while they were in the Indian Ocean had come back with a vengeance while they crossed the Atlantic. And by this point, Bradley was very nearly on death's door. If Captain Kidd dragged him to Darien, or even if he tried to take him back home to New York, Bradley might not make it. So Kidd gave him permission to go ashore there at St. Thomas, where he could hopefully recover. And that may have been the deciding factor for Captain Kidd. It may have been obligation to Samuel Bradley's sister, Captain Kidd's wife, or it may have been sentimentality. By all accounts, William Kidd really loved Sarah Bradley, and he had not seen her in years now. He missed his wife, and in the end, decided to return home. Sarah Bradley definitely missed her husband. Things had been hard in New York with her husband and her brother both gone. They'd been doubly hard since reports that Captain Kidd was the worst pirate in the world had begun to filter back. She was praying for his safe return, and Captain Kidd was going to do just that. Next time we have something interesting to offer. This Thursday I'm going to be hosting an episode from another podcast here on this feed. It's an episode of History Daily about the arrest of Captain Kidd. It's going to begin just about where our story today leaves off, and it should be fun to hear another point of view, another take on this topic. And when I return at our regularly scheduled time next week, we're going to discuss that same topic. Kids return to New York, his wife Sarah especially, and his arrest for piracy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a like. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. 
You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight